Now please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4 and verse 13. And today we're going to be looking at the section from chapter 4, verse 13, through to chapter 5, verse 11. Let's pray, though, for God's help as we do so. Father God, we pray that as we turn again to Paul's marvelous letter, that the Holy Spirit would take up his sword that is the Word of God and speak with power to every soul in this room. Whether we are Christians, whether we are in a good place in our Christian life or struggling, or if we're not yet convinced Christians, we pray that we would understand what being a Christian is. And all that we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, on the back of the service sheet, you'll see some uh, notes which will navigate us through this section of Romans. Let me quickly just bring us up to speed in Paul's argument. He spent the first three chapters convincing us that everyone is unrighteous and under the judgment of God. There are no exceptions and no excuses. So people who consider themselves good or good enough are not. Now that's not hard, I think. I've not found that hard from the conversations I've had to convince us of that. You know in your heart and mind, like I know in my heart and mind, that we are not good. I have no confidence that standing before Jesus on Judgment Day, I can say to him, I cannot summon all my self-righteousness and say, I am good. Good enough to have eternal fellowship with a perfect, holy, and almighty God. We cannot plead our self-righteousness. And just to say self-righteousness, it can be an arrogant thing. But oftentimes, people think that self-righteousness is necessary for salvation. That there needs to be a contribution from us. There doesn't. Nor can we rest assured in our religion, our church affiliation, our membership. We're pleased to welcome a number of people into membership in the church today. Having done so in service one, I then told them that their membership didn't count for anything on the last day. And it doesn't. You can't plead to God, Lord Jesus, look at my church record. Look at my religious affiliation. Look at my heritage. The conclusion, no one is righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, to come to terms with that is hard and humbling, but necessary, urgently necessary, for the stakes are high. The stakes are eternity, eternal life in a glory of the new creation, or eternal death in hell. The stakes are that high. Christianity is not a lifestyle choice. It is an urgent decision for eternity. And God wonderfully has provided the answer to our plight in the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? The gospel is not vague at all. The gospel in the Bible is crystal clear. 
We've seen in Romans that the gospel is that we are justified, that is declared righteous by God. It's not that so we are declared righteous. Righteousness is conferred on us from outside of us by grace alone, that is an undeserved gift from God offered to us, received by faith alone. All we can do, all we need to do, is reach out with empty hands to the cross to receive that gift because our salvation is by grace alone, through empty-handed faith alone, in Christ alone. The death of Jesus Christ, who bore our sins and bore the wrath of God for our sin. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now let me take you to Judgment Day when you stand before the Lord Jesus as we all will face to face. And judgment day is judgment day. Even though we can know in the gospel the answer now, it is judgment day. Is it not persuasive what Paul says? What will you plead to the Lord Jesus? Your self-righteousness? Your religion? Or will you plead in humility, that I am justified only because of your grace and mercy, only because the Spirit moved me to reach out empty-handed for salvation in the death of your beloved Son. Now, which is most persuasive in your heart? Now, what difference does the gospel described in the Bible, and there is one gospel, the gospel in the Bible, I'm in this dialogue with somebody in our church community at the moment that, that, that's trying to say that the gospel that I preach and that Rog and Sam and others preach is our interpretation of the gospel. What I'm trying to say to them is that we all, preacher, as much as anyone, sits under the authority of the Bible. What you need to do this morning is to, is to conclude that what I am saying is from the Bible. That's the key. And if you ever think that we're not teaching what's in the Bible, then you need to start a riot. You do. I mean, it matters that much. It does. What difference does the real gospel make in the life of a church and an individual? Romans is primarily corporate, so it takes us all as a group, and it says, what difference does justification by faith alone in Christ alone make to a church? First, and then to us as individuals. Much of the New Testament applies the gospel to the church and secondary to us as individuals. The first thing we saw last week is that the gospel is the great leveler. That's 3.27 to 4.12. 
In other words, the first big pastoral implication of the gospel is that everybody in this room who is a Christian, whatever your heritage or background, whatever your position in life in a worldly sense, is the same. Whether you've been a Christian for 10 years or 10 minutes, God looks at you and sees Jesus Christ, his righteousness. A church family should never have insiders and outsiders. There is no such thing in the New Testament as core families in a church. There's just sinners saved by grace. Everybody is the same. And there is no place on earth, there is no meeting going on this morning in Edinburgh other than in living gospel churches where everybody is fundamentally united in terms of their inner being and identity. And when you get your head around that, or for those of you here as undergrads, think of the CU, when you get your head around the fact that you are all sinners saved by grace, all justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you will think in a united way, you will live, and your hearts and your will will be moved in a united way. All of a sudden, that unity stops you looking inwards to sort out the disunity that arises with all the frictions of our human relationships, and we look out, and the church becomes mission-minded and evangelistic. The gospel is the great uh, leveler. Now, um, Paul moves on now in chapter 4.13 to 5.11 to show us how the gospel is the real uh, reassurer, literally, or the gospel that is justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, gives us 100% certainty in relation to our whole eternity. That's a big claim. A big, big claim. And Paul wants to reason with us that we might have real certainty. He wants to get our minds around it, and then our hearts around it, and then our lives around it. He wants you to know certainty that you might be able to encourage others in the church as to certainty of salvation. And if the leveling of the gospel that creates unity gives us confidence to do evangelism and not be distracted by what's going on inside, if that's true, then certainty must be at least as powerful to give confidence in the gospel. See what Paul is doing? He's trying to unite us. And having united us, he's trying to take this group of people and say, look, I want to inject into your minds and hearts certainty. When you are united and certain, you have confidence in mission, 
And you need confidence in the gospel, not least in the Western world in the days in which we live. Because humanly speaking, you will find none. You will find no reasons out there to think that the gospel really is the power of God for salvation. Now let's move to chapter 5 and work out how it is that the gospel gives us real certainty and real confidence. I've skipped over Abraham just so we can get to the end. Um, just, just glance, we got as far as chapter 4, verse 12 last week. Just glance at chapter 4, 13 to 25. Just read from verse 18 with me. This is what certain faith looks like. Abraham is the example. This is real faith. In hope, verse 18, he believed against hope. Verse 19, he did not weaken in his faith. Verse 20, no distrust made him waver concerning the promises of God. He grew strong in his faith. Verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. The language is striking. In hope, he believed against hope. Abraham's faith was such that he was convinced when there was plenty of reason, humanly speaking, to doubt. Now, isn't that real and true for you? It is for me. In hope, he believed against hope. Real faith is such that we are convinced when they're humanly speaking in our lives is ample reason to doubt. Or he did not weaken in his faith. Even when Abraham considered the impossibility of God's promise that he would have children being fulfilled because he was an old man and his wife was barren. Yet he believed. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. He grew strong in his faith, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now, can we have faith like that? You can say, well, that's Abraham. He's a superhero. And I think what Paul does is he, he holds up the, the hero of faith, Abraham, or himself, not to discourage us, but to convince us that the people that you put on pedestals, think of Paul's logic, are just justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that you and I can have hope against hope. You and I can get through all of life and not weaken in our faith. You and I cannot waver concerning the promises of God. And we can be fully convinced. Can we have faith like that? Now, Paul wants to shout out, yes. Now, you might be thinking, and I might be thinking, or you might be feeling, and I might be thinking, can we really, in the reality of the Christian life, we still sin. The battle rages. 
We feel shame. We often feel far from God. We doubt the promises of God. I mean, is it only me? Maybe this will shock you as a minister that I need to keep coming back to Romans, to the gospel, to really be convinced that God will get me home to glory and that Jesus will come again and there will be a new creation. Maybe it's just me. Bet it's not. We are not exempt from the suffering of living in a fallen, broken, disordered, diseased world. Will your faith stand up to that when it comes? Is your faith standing up to that? Because it has come. And we will die. Sin, suffering, shame, death, that is real life. So in the face of that, can we have certainty? Paul's answer, yes. And he takes on all the hardest questions. Yes, because you are justified by grace through faith in Christ. Or going back to his earlier arguments, if you were justified partly by grace through faith in Christ and partly by your moral goodness or your religion, you could not have certainty. You could have not have certainty. Because you would conclude as you suffer that your endurance or perseverance or ability to cope with suffering would be a determinative factor in how God would view you in the end. And that is like walking through life with a weight on your shoulders that is simply too great to bear. Now, the gospel gives us real certainty and real assurance. Verses 1 to 5 of chapter 11. Let me read that for us. And we'll definitely get to verse 5 by lunchtime. Verses 1 to 5 of chapter 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now you'll see on the sheet the headings. Verses 1 to 5 spell out the implications of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. What are they? Number one, we have peace with God. Verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... Now, just that's Paul's shorthand for justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If it was Luke, Luke writes everything down. 
Luke would have written justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ all of the time. Justification by faith, Paul means the whole thing, yeah? Because of the gospel, justification by grace, through faith in Christ, it's all God to us. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. We have peace with God. Now, what exactly does Paul mean by peace with God? So what is peace with God? And this is where Paul works hard to get our minds around the gospel. You need to understand what peace with God is. It's related to, but not the same as the peace of God. The peace of God is a subjective experience. It's what Paul writes about, for example, in Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now that's the peace of God. That's subjective. It's the supernatural ability we have as Christians to be at peace to sing it as well with my soul in the middle of circumstances that humanly we could not do that in. That's the peace of God. What is peace with God? Well, peace with God underpins, undergirds the peace of God. In fact, it undergirds everything. Peace with God means peace with regard to God or peace between me and God. Before we became a Christian, we were at war with God, living in rebellion, God's anger, God's hostility against sin directed against us, God and humanity at war. I raised the question in the first service, and needfully, given a conversation afterwards, is that, is that right? Are we really at war with God before we're Christians? And I said to the person, well, you're not a Christian. How do you view God? And there was an hostility. So what's the number one swear word? The name of Jesus. Humanity is at war with God. And God is at war with us. Because of our sinful rebellion. But the moment you became a Christian... The moment you reached out empty-handed, as we sung, and received salvation, hostilities ceased between you and God. Think of North Korea and the United States as Austin was praying. Would it be a good thing, and would you be relieved if hostilities ceased. Or think if we had lived two generations ago and we had lived through one of the great wars. How would you feel the day that hostilities ceased? The day you became a Christian, hostility between you and God ceased. 
Peace with God is a fact for every Christian. Notice, it is a fact, not a feeling. So as you sit here this morning, maybe things are good with you in your Christian life. And you feel, and I'm struggling to make you keep paying attention because you're saying, well, that's a no-brainer. Of course I'm at peace with God. But suppose you're sitting here this morning and you feel anything but right with God. You're struggling with sin, shame, doubt. Maybe yesterday was a rotten day. Maybe you did stuff, said stuff, thought stuff. There's a mile away from where you want to be as a Christian. Let me encourage you. Let Paul encourage you. You are at peace with God. If yesterday, if you were a real Christian and you were far from God, as many of us would have been, that does not mean that yesterday you stopped being at peace with God. And what a wonderful confidence-giving boost that is. You know how we often say in the Christian life, I'm out of sorts with God. I need to get right with God. That means you need to start reading your Bible and praying again and doing evangelism. Absolutely. But you are right with God. Because the gospel is justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. Now, we're going to get to all the stuff later in Romans about, does that mean I don't have to bother about sin? All that stuff we'll get to. What a blessed reassurance it is. Hostilities have ceased. Justification by faith gives us peace with God. It also gives us access into grace in which we stand. Here's a question for student lunch after the service. What exactly does Paul mean by access into grace in which we stand? And you see, what Paul wants you to do is know the answer to that precisely. If you know the answer to that, it gets your head, your heart, and your life. Through him, verse 2, the Lord Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And Paul's point is that justification does not only end our hostility with God, through justification we are brought into a relationship with God, friendship with God. We have obtained access into this grace, access into this grace. What is this grace? What precisely does it mean? I think it means we have in our relationship with God, wait for it, all that Jesus has in his relationship with God. That's a big claim. Paul will expand on that in chapter 8. You are, this morning, if you are a Christian, how do you know you're a Christian? If you have come empty-handed with a repentant heart and simply reached out to receive salvation from Christ because you are conscious that if you don't do it, judgment will come. That's what faith is. That's you, you're converted. And Paul says in Romans 8, you're a child of God. You're adopted. You're a co-heir with Jesus. You're thinking, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. Paul says we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. The word stand means remain. Remain for how long? For eternity. Having obtained access by faith, we cannot unattain it. One writer puts it like this, 
from the moment of our conversion when we came in repentance empty-handed to Jesus and were declared righteous, we were given access to the royal throne room. And however we feel the Christian life is, however we feel in it, however we are, wherever we go in the world, we are always in the heavenly throne room, in the place where Christ is, with all the privileges he has. How do we know? Well, for one thing, we can speak to our God as our Father in heaven. Now, let me pause and clear up a misunderstanding. This is important. Everything a preacher thinks they say is important, but this is important. Access to God. See, what Paul's getting at with all of this is that you believe the gospel, yet you believe you're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. If you were converted yesterday, you knew that when you were converted. But by tomorrow, you forget, and you live as if you weren't justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Here's how that might happen. Access to God. Being in the presence of God. Knowing God as Father. How do you have access to God? When you come empty-handed to the cross. Jesus, when he breathed his last, said, It is finished. And the curtain temple was torn in two. It is finished. Hostility ceased. And full access at that moment. We do not need anything or anyone else than him to bring us into the presence of God. We don't need a priest. We don't need a preacher. We don't need a worship leader. We don't need singing. We don't need someone to lay hands on us. We don't need a special experience. Justification by grace through faith in Christ gives us full, free, and unfettered access to God. What a relief that is. I mean, think about it. Imagine if we needed to look around in the Christian life for something that gave us real, true access to God. What a way to live. Now, let me come at it backwards so that you don't mishear what I'm saying. Listening to preaching, even my cluttered attempt at Romans 5, might move you to the core of your being that you, sitting here at this moment, are deeply affected by these truths and you know that you have full access to God. You know that you are at peace with God. And that's not because I'm preaching. It's because preaching has reminded you of who you are. See the difference? Or singing. Singing is a rich and a wonderful part of our life and worship. This week, I've been listening again and again to a recording of O Love That Wilt Not Let Me Go. That's an old hymn for oldies like me. I find it incredibly moving. I've listened to it dozens of times. In fact, I was listening to it this morning when my computer ran out of gas so I couldn't print my sermon. But we managed. Listening to all love that will not let me go or any songs that really help you 
does not lead you into the presence of God. It awakens within you a consciousness, a realization that you are always in the presence of God. You see the difference? One gives you assurance. The other has you looking all around. Justification gives us, thirdly, joy in the hope of the glory of God. We're definitely not going to get beyond verse 5. We rejoice or boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now, it is one thing to be at peace with God, hostilities ended. It is one thing to have access to God's presence, to be able to speak to God as our Father in heaven. I told you that from the moment of your conversion, you had access to the royal throne room, but you do when you pray, but we're not there, are we? We're here. We're here in church, which is great. We might have a, a good lunch. But the world is pretty tough, isn't it? I mean, it's pretty bleak. Just think of your prayers for others every Sunday. Or if I could turn over the stones that are your lives and breach all the confidences you give me we wouldn't really conclude that we're in the throne room of heaven yet. It is quite another thing to be physically with God, our Father, and with Jesus, our Savior in the new heavens and the new earth. But Paul says, you will be. You can have joy in the hope of the glory of God. Let me quote from uh, Graham Kendrick's hymn. Graham Kendrick is an oldie now. People like me think he writes modern, he doesn't. He's about 100, I think. I remember singing this hymn at the funeral of Derek Prime. Some of you will know his name, his daughter. She died when she was 31 of cancer. I knew her well and her husband, Colin. We sang this song. When I stand in glory, I will see your face, and there I'll serve my King forever in that holy place. And then listen to the chorus. Thank you, O my Father, for giving us your Son. Now, what's the logic of that? When I stand in glory, I will see your face. There I'll serve my King forever in that holy place. How can I have that confidence? Thank you for giving your Son who died on the cross. You see the point? How can you sing with joy about glory? Because you are justified by grace through faith in Christ. That's the point. Why are lots of you smiling? Not all of you. You're smiling inside. Why are you smiling? Because it's true. Because it's true. Joy in the hope of the glory of God. Hope is a weak word in English. It means Let's hope that happens when there is no possibility it will. In the Bible, it means sure and certain, convicted hope. How can your hope be sure and certain? Because your hope is, as preachers would say in days gone by, nailed to a cross. Your hope is grounded in the fact that you are justified by grace through faith in Christ. Now, Paul goes on in verses 3 to 5a to talk about joy in our sufferings. 
Life is full of suffering for the Christian as it is for everyone. Indeed, more for the Christian because we suffer because of our faith. What difference does the gospel make in our sufferings? What Paul says is radical. Verse 3, more than that, we rejoice or boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Paul is not saying we rejoice because we suffer. There is no joy in the troubles themselves. God hates the pain and troubles of this life, and so should we. How on earth can we rejoice in our suffering? I mean, really. Because our suffering is not pointless, it produces endurance, character, hope, does it? Does it really? Well, let me answer that this way. I'm an oldie, and most of you are youngies. There are some oldie oldies here that make me look a youngie. Let me tell you that again and again in my life as a minister, I see people in their suffering grow stronger, more like Jesus, and more hopeful. Most of all, when they are dying. Here's a story of a lady called Anne. Anne Shaw was her name. Her family were in the first service. She was a lovely Christian lady. She was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and she said to my wife, Sally, I wonder if it's true that when I walk through that dark valley, I will be the most hopeful I have ever been as a Christian. Which is absurd, humanly. And the day Sally always remember going to visit her in the Western General. And Anne, she walked into the room and this lady cried out to her, it's true, it's true. And that's not a made-up story. It's real. It's real. More endurance, more character, more hope. Why is that? Because it's supernatural. We'll get to the Spirit when we finish in a moment. But because nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ, which is grounded in the fact that you are justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. So if I get run over by a bus on the way home, it might put a bit of a damper on lunch. But I'll be safe for eternity. Because death cannot rob me of that. One of the things I notice in ministry over the years is that those who are suffering find that strength. Those who look on find it much harder. I think that is indicative of how God, when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, is, is right there in a very powerful way, which brings us exactly where you would hope Paul would go and where you feel he needs to go to the end of verse 5, to verse 5, God's love through the Holy Spirit. 
Um, one thing I forgot to say. Grant me 30 more seconds. When you're suffering, some of you will be, don't go home thinking like someone who is not justified by grace through faith, like, I've got to find strength. I've got to find endurance. Just rest in God and put on a recording of a love that will not let me go. And listen to this verse. O joy that seekest me through pain. Not through pain I seek to reach out and find joy, because you won't. Joy that seekest me through pain. See the logic? The gospel, justification by grace through faith in Christ, in the Christian life, not just a conversion. God saved you when you couldn't. God will break through in your life again and again. And you will find that you cannot, try as you, try as you will, close your heart to Jesus. Now, God's love through the Holy Spirit, as he concludes the beautiful reasoning of the gospel, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hope does not put us to shame. And here's a little insider comment. The world out there this morning thinks you guys are crazy. Thinks I'm crazy. We are a bit. They think you're foolish. Foolish. You have no cause for shame. That's what he's saying. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Everything that I've said this morning will hit your heart because of the Holy Spirit, not because of me or rhetoric or anything like that. It's supernatural. It is the love of God poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit that convinces you that you are at peace with God. It is the love of God poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit that enables you to use the words, Father. It is the love of God poured into your hearts by the Holy Spirit that is the first fruits of everlasting glory. It is the Holy Spirit that groans, remember chapter 8, groans in you when you are groaning. It is the Holy Spirit that gives you joy in your pain. Is that all true for you? In the realm of real life like me? I don't mean, is it true for you like me, real life like me? Is it true? I hope so. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, thank you for Paul's great, powerful, moving implications of the gospel in our lives as a church and as individuals. Help us, Lord, to really grasp what it means to be justified by grace through faith in Christ. Hostilities ended. Access to God. Joy in the hope of glory. Joy seeking us even in our sufferings. Your love poured out to us through the Holy Spirit imprinting all these things on our minds and hearts. May that be true of us all. And if it's not yet true, may we find that deep assurance by coming empty-handed to Jesus. For we ask that in his name. Amen.